Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies, Foodies Watching, Watching Movies. A podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon. So we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following, following. the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This is episode ten of Poor Three Sixty. As always, I am your host, Andrew Poor. Thank you for joining me today. Now, if you listen to last week's episode, you know that the poll for last week, the winner was indictments versus presidential pardons. And I said that I was kind of take a break because it was uh, I just finished watching Captain Marvel and I feel like talking about customer service and the technological age and what's going on with that. So I told you indictments would be this week's show, and it is. This episode is going to be on indictments. Now, none of us really have been, I hope none of my listeners have really been exposed to an indictment. But if you've been paying any attention to news lately, you know that there's been a lot of indictments in the news. So we'll talk about all of that. But before we kind of get into that, let's get into what an indictment is. Now, this is from the legaldictionary.com, so dictionary.law.com. So it's where you can search legal terms if you don't familiar. And if you're ever in a pace where you're looking at a legal document, you have to look up the words, you're probably not in the best place. So here it is. An indictment is a charge of a felony or a serious crime. Voted by a grand jury based upon a proposed charge, witness testimony, or other evidence presented by the public prosecutor or the district attorney. To bring an indictment, the grand jury will not find guilt, but only find the probability that the crime was committed. That the accused person did it, and that he, she, he slash she should be tried. District attorneys often only introduce key facts sufficient to show the probability both to save time and to avoid revealing all the evidence. The Fifth Amendment... To the U.S. Constitution provides that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on presentment of a grand jury. However, while grand juries are common in charging federal crimes, many states use grand juries sparingly and use the criminal complaint followed by a preliminary hearing held by a lower court judge or other magistrate who will determine whether or not the prosecutor has presented sufficient evidence that the accused has committed a felony. If the judge believes there's enough evidence, he or she will... Order the case sent to the appropriate court for trial. So there you go. That's very rough. So let's see what Wikipedia has to say. So this is kind of a short one. So an indictment. This is from Wikipedia. An indictment is a criminal accusation that a person has committed a crime in jurisdiction that use the concept of felonies. The most serious criminal offense is a felony. Jurisdictions that do not use felonies, this concept often use that of an indictable offense, an offense that requires an indictment. So, and really don't care how indictments work in other countries because it's to be told it's a little different probably england like the united kingdom that area probably is the closest but countries that do use indictments um according to wikipedia is in india the united kingdom because it's going to be england and wales northern ireland scotland and the united states oh my gosh sorry uh i'm recording from the guest room and uh liz and my bird is out doing its thing and the cat cannot handle that so it's wanting to get in very badly wouldn't be a podcast on the journey to comics network if there wasn't an animal somewhere around so 
Now, let's, so, that's kind of what an indictment is. We know in the United States, the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution states that no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, like I said before. Um, the requirement of indictment has not been incorporated against the states, therefore, even though the federal judge uses grand jury's indictments, not all U.S. states do. If many, if not all U.S. jurisdictions that use grand jury's prosecutors often have a choice between seeking an indictment from a grand jury and filing a charge document directly with the court. Such a document is usually called an information, accusation, or complaint. To distinguish it from a grand jury indictment, to protect the suspect's due process rights in felony cases where the suspect's interest is in liberty is at stake, there is usually a preliminary hearing in which judge determines whether there was probable cause to arrest the who's in custody. If the judge finds such a probable cause, he or she uh, binds or holds over the suspect for trial. The substance of indictment or other charging instruments is usually the same regardless of the jurisdiction. It consists of a short and plain statement of where, when, and how the defendant allegedly committed the offense. Each offense, each offense, sorry, not offense, it's not football season yet, uh, each offense usually is set out in a separate count. Indictments for complex crimes, particularly those involving conspiracy or numerous events, may run to hundreds of pages of in other cases, however, an indictment to a, for a serious crime as serious as murder may consist of a single sheet of paper. Indictable offenses are normally tried by jury, unless the accused waives the right to a jury trial, even though the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution mandates the right to a jury trial in any criminal prosecution. The vast majority of criminal cases in the U.S. are resolved by the plea bargaining process. And I guess there's other types of indictments, including a sealed indictment, which an indictment can be sealed so that it stays non-public until it is unsealed. This can be done for a number of reasons. It may be unsealed, for example, once the named person is arrested or has been notified by police. There's also a superseding indictment, which takes place of a previous indictment in use. So I guess if that was like a crime of more prominence, it supersedes the one that's currently on, I'm guessing. Now, in the news, there have been quite a number, and it's actually a lot of it's been in the entertainment industry. So for those of you who've taken into news, there's been... Uh, Two indictments coming out of Chicago, one uh, coming out recently involving some fame, like some celebrities and some college mission stuff, as well as something more in the political sphere involving uh, Netanyahu and uh, Paul Manafort. So let's jump right in. Let's go to one that's probably the oldest one, and that involves Jussie Smollett. He's an actor on Empire. He made news a while back when he said he was jumped in Chicago by some major Trump supporters that totally it was made it was very much a hate crime the way he described it and the way it all happened. So he's been indicted now on sixteen felony counts for allegedly making false reports. So Empire actor Justice Mollett, who authorities say filed false reports of a crime, has been indicted on sixteen felony counts by a Cook County grand jury. See, indictments need a grand jury. The indictment charges Smollett thirty six with sixteen counts of disorderly conduct. Mark uh Jaragos, one of Smollett's attorneys and a CNN legal analyst, said the actor maintains his innocence and calls the indictment prosec prosecutorial overkill. This redundant vindictive indictment is nothing more than a desperate attempt to make headlines, Jaragos uh, said. He remains out on bail pending an arraignment Thursday. This coming Thursday, I believe. Actually, no, Friday, March 8th, last Thursday. So this is a little outdated. I have to kind of follow up and see what's more to this. Um... Now let's just before I get to let's see what's going on with that arraignment. 
Uh, let's see. Mm. There's nothing really new in the articles. I guess nothing really came up Thursday that I can see in by searching his name on Google. So, Small reported to police in January that he had been attacked in Chicago in an incident and ended with a noose around his neck. Police initially investigated the case as a possible hate crime. The counts in the indictment obtained by CNN say Smollett gave statements to a Chicago police officer after the instance and to a detective. Details of some of those statements were different, the indictment says. The indictment says Smollett told police he was attacked by two men who used racial and homophobic slurs during an attack at 2 a.m. After police detained two brothers who were persons of interest in mid-February, police sources revealed that authorities suspected Smollett knew the men and allegedly had paid them $3,500 to stage the attack. The men were released without being charged. Smollett has denied any involvement or orchestrating an attack. Smollett was charged in February with felony disorderly conduct. The judge granted a $100,000 bail, and Smollett paid a $10,000 bond. I think usually you pay 10% of your bail, if I'm not mistaken. He was ordered to give up his passport and remain under supervision until his case is uh, adjudicated. So like any other citizen, Mr. Smollett enjoys the presumption of innocence, particularly when he has been in a... An investigation like this one, where information both true and false has been repeatedly leaked, given the circumstances we intend to conduct a thorough investigation and mount an aggressive defense, Smollett's attorney said in February. The subsection of the Illinois law states, a person commits disorderly conduct when he or she knowingly transmits or causes to be transmitted any manner of any peace officer, public officer, or public employee report to the effect that an offense, sorry, I keep wanting to say offense, an offense will be committed is being committed or has been committed, knowing at the time of the transmission that there is no reasonable ground for believing that the offense will be committed, is being committed, or has been committed. Gotta love legal jargon. Uh, the producers behind Empire decided to remove Smollett's character, Jamal, from the final two episodes of the season. This was made to avoid further disruption on set, producers said. Um, and on Friday, the spokesman for Fox had no comment. So this is one of the one in the entertainment industry, and this also... And speaking of Chicago, this doesn't come too far before another celebrity had found himself indicted. So R. Kelly, I believe I can fly, yeah, uh, turned himself in to Chicago police after being indicted on sexual abuse charges. Now, seeing R. Kelly was placed in handcuffs as he entered a Chicago police station Friday night. Um, this is definitely dated article. This is dated, when was this? February 22nd, so almost a month ago. Uh, hours after he was indicted on 10 counts of aggravated criminal sexual abuse, a Class two felony involving four alleged victims. His attorney, Steve Greenberg, and Cook County State's attorney, Kim Fox, succumbed to public pressure that his client is an innocent man. I think all the women are lying, Greenberg said. Kelly didn't speak to the media. Mr. Kelly is strong. He's got a lot of support. He's going to be vindicated of all these charges. Um, one by one, if he has to be. Kelly said to appear in court... Uh, Saturday for a bail hearing, Fox said while announcing the charges are is set for March 8th. So, I wonder if actually he's been arraigned yet. Let's go back to the Google machine and see what is going on with R. Kelly now. Um, if there's any updates about... Um, let's see, so this is from the source. Because um, I know like after the everything went out about his indictment um just kind of get to so let's just let me finish this article and i'll keep going so the charges handed up an indictment from a grand jury span from 1998 to 2010 fox said it convicted kelly faces three to seven years in prison for each count kelly's been associated with accusations of abuse manipulation and appropriate encounters with girls and young women for more than two decades 
He strongly denied these accusations. The indictments accused Kelly of sexual acts with three children older than 13, but younger than 17. There's no age range listed for one of the alleged victims. The charges that Kelly used force or the threat of force. Homeland Security investigation is involved in the investigation of Kelly and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement said the official did not provide any detail. The news was first reported by the New Yorker. So, there was also a newly discovered video a grand jury was convened in Cook County, Illinois earlier this month in connection with a new allegation against Kelly, two sources close to the case told CNN. The came on the heels of attorney Michael Avenatti announcing he had handed over the state's attorney's office a video tape that he said no one showed Kelly having sex with an underage girl. The tape leaves no question as to whether R. Kelly is guilty of multiple sexual legal acts against a 14-year-old girl he told reporters Friday. Sid Fox's investigation was very thorough, dedicated, and methodical. Greenberg told CNN earlier this month he had not been notified of a grand jury... After being asked about the new tape, he has separated he and his colleagues were unaware of the new information involving Kelly. CNN has seen the VHS tape that appears to show Kelly having sex with a girl who refers to her body parts as 14 years old. Kelly's attorney has said he has not seen the video. We deal with it in court, Greenberg said. The newly unearthed footage, which lasts 42 minutes and 45 seconds, is clear and explicit. What is on the video mirrors some of the alleged acts for which Kelly was arrested in a child pornography case in 2002 when he was 35 and then acquitted six years later. He's been sued by multiple women accusing him of having sex with them when they were underage. Most cases, with the exception of the trial where he was acquitted, had been settled out of court. And while it was one of the most sexual R&B acts in history, there had been a growing movement against him, including the Mute R. Kelly campaign to stop his music being played. In July 2017, BuzzFeed published an explosive article outlining allegations that Kelly was holding a group of adult women against their wills a part of his, part of what some other parents said was a cult. Jocelyn Savage, one of the young women, denied those claims and asked her parents via video shared TMZ to stop speaking out about her relationship with Kelly. In January, the release of a docuseries called Surviving R. Kelly on Lifetime Television helped boost the public campaign against him. In that series, women that said they were kept in abusive sexual relationships. Gruber said the women accused the singer have financial motivations. Everybody's trying to profit off R. Kelly, he said. So, that's kind of what we know about that. But apparently, as of now, as of an article from... Today, um, singer Ars Kelly Publicist speaks out again about his client's mental state following his infamous interview with CBS's Gail King, which he believed helped his client tremendously. Kelly's publicist, Daryl Johnson, said the singer since his days singing gospel music in his Trump Tower apartment talking about his mama. Johnson also shares he likes to look at out his window at those five big M's hovering over the five McDonald's restaurants he can see from his apartment. That's his heart. Kind of odd. Oddly enough, the singer has been accused of recruiting girls at the infamous fast food restaurant. Those huge McDonald's M reminds him of his mom because that's where they would go to eat when he was poor. He continued, he's talking about his mom, 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 all the time. Having a view of one of those McDonald's nearby at 600 North Clark Street in Chicago, obviously, makes him feel good. Nothing perverted or bad. He smokes cigars and drinks a lot of Dunkin' Donuts coffee, but he leads a rather dull life these days. So yeah, so who knows what's going to come of this, but... That's R. Kelly for you. Um, I remember that one, I believe that was him who made that video, or it was like that long video series about, uh, was it Trapped in a Closet, or... Yeah, I think there was something like that. It was like that long video series that was very unusual. Okay, so now, before we get into kind of some political stuff, this is something that's, I think, the biggest news of the past week or so, and that involves... Uh, the full indictment charging actors, CEOs, and others in a nationwide college admission scheme. 
Surpassers call it a conspiracy nationwide in scope. Dozens of parents, sports coaches, and college prep executives have been indicted for trying to get students into prestigious colleges. Um, so we have a list of those who have been charged. And I actually have the whole... In full kind of indictment. So this is an affidavit in support of criminal complaint. So let's see. Um, I'll read the first couple pages to kind of get you the list of all the people involved. And I'll try and get some. I don't want to read the whole giant document, but so it is. So it kind of opens with um, I, Laura Smith, been duly sworn to as follows. I'm a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigations assigned to the Boston, Massachusetts field office. Joined an FBI in 2010 as a forensic accountant conducting complex financial investigations. Currently special agent on a squad that investigates economic crime, including various forms of corporate fraud, securities fraud, and bribery. Hold a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, economic crimes investigation, and a master's degree in accounting. As an FBI special agent, I am investigating or a law enforcement officer of the United States with the meaning of Title 18 United States Code. Is that I'm empowered by law to conduct investigations of to and make arrests for offenses numerated in Title 18 United States Code Section 2516. McDaffney in support of criminal complaints charging the following individuals, collectively known as the defendants, with conspiracy to commit mail fraud and honest services mail fraud in violation of Title 18, United States Code Section 1349. So the ones who are involved, and obviously you're not going to know all these names because some are just random people, but some are famous actors and actresses. So we have um, Gregory Abbott, Marsha Abbott, Gamal Abdelaziz, Diane Blake, Todd Blake, Jane Buckingham, Gordon Kaplan. I have seen Joey Chen, Amy Colburn, Gregory Colburn, Robert Flaxman, Massimo Giannulli, Elizabeth Henriquez, Manuel Henriquez, Douglas Hodge, Felicity Huffman, Augustin Hines Jr., Bruce Isaacson, Davina Isaacson, Michael Giovannis, Elizabeth Kimmel, Marjorie Clapper, Lori Laughlin, Toby McFarlane, William McCaulshin Jr., Marshall Paletta, Peter John Sartorio, Stephen Semprevio, Devin Sloan, John B. Wilson, Humayun Zadeh, and Robert Zangrillo. Uh, specifically, I set forth below, I have probable cause to believe that the defendants conspired with other known and unknown. One, to bribe college entrance exam administration to facilitate cheating on college entrance exams. Two, to bribe varsity coaches and administrators at elite universities to designate certain applicants as recruited athletes or as favored candidates, thereby facilitating the applicant's admission to those universities. And three, to use this facade of a charitable organization to conceal the nature and source of the bribe payments. Four, this fact sets forth in this affidavit come from my personal involvement with the investigation, um, interviews with witnesses, including the cooperation witness described below, my review of documents including bank records, flight records, emails, telephone, toll records, cell site data, and other materials obtained through grand jury subpoenas and search warrants. So... Um, I'll read the overview of the conspiracy because that seems kind of interesting. Let's get a little more information about how this came to be because apparently this has been going on for a while and it's become memes with uh, um, Lori Laughlin, who's um, was Aunt Becky on Full House and I think was also reprised the character on Fuller House, if I'm not mistaken. So here's the overview of the conspiracy proving probable cause. Beginning in or about 2011 and continuing through the present, the defendants principally individually principally individuals whose high school age children were applying to college conspire with others to use bribery and other forms of fraud to facilitate their children's admission to colleges and universities in the District of Massachusetts and elsewhere, including Yale University, Stanford University, the University of Texas, the University of Southern California, the University of California, Los Angeles, among others. 
Evidence I reviewed shows that the scheme includes the following. A. Bribing college entrance exam administrators to allow a third party to facilitate cheating on college entrance exam. In some cases, by posing as the actual students. In others, by providing students with answers during the exams or by correcting their answers after they had completed the exam. Wow. Um, B. Bribing university athletic coaches and administrators to designate applicants as purported athletic recruits regardless of their athletic abilities, and in some cases, even though they did not play the sport, they were purportedly recruited to play, thereby facilitating their admission to universities in place of more qualified applicants. Having a third party take classes in place of the actual students with the understanding that the grades earned in those classes will be submitted as part of the student's college applications. Wow, another one. Uh, submitting falsified applications for admission to universities in the District of Massachusetts and elsewhere that among other things include the fraudulently obtained exam scores and class grades, not to listen fake awards and athletic activities, and E, disguising the nature of source of those bribe payments by funneling the money through the accounts of a purported charity from which many of the bribes were then paid. Uh, let's see. The certain relevant persons and entities. We have uh, the Edge College and Career Network, LLC, also known as The Key, is a poor-profit college counseling and preparation business based in Newport Beach, California that was established in around 2007 and registered in California about 2012. The Key Worldwide Foundation can do is a non-profit corporation founded also around 2012 in Newport Beach, California. In about 2013, the IRS approved KDF as an exempt organization under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code, meaning that KDF is exempt from paying federal income tax and that individuals who contribute to KDF may deduct those contributions from their taxable income subject to certain limitations. We have ACT, Inc., which is a nonprofit organization headquartered in Iowa City, Iowa, that administers the ACT exam, a standardized test that is widely used as part of the college admission process in the United States. The ACT includes English sections as on English, mathematics, reading, and science, and is graded on a scale of 1 to 36. The College Board is a non-profit organization headquartered in New York, New York, together with the Educational Testing Service, a non-profit organization headquartered in Lawrence Township, New Jersey. The College Board develops and administers the SAT, a standardized test that, like the ACT exam, is widely used as part of the college admission process in the United States. Between 2005 and 2016, the SAT was graded on a scale of 600 to 2400. As of March 2016, this has been scored on a scale of 400 to 1600. The College Board and ETS have also developed and administered SAT subject tests, which are also part of the college admission process. These are all people that are also kind of involved in this. We have Georgetown University, highly selective private university located in Washington, D.C., Stanford University, another highly selective private university located in Palo Alto, California, UCLA, a highly selective public university located in Los Angeles, California, University of San Diego, University of Southern California, University of Texas at Austin, or U-Texas. Wake Forest University, or known as just known as Wake Forest, located in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yale University, obviously. The athletic teams of Georgetown, Stanford, UCLA, USD, USC, U-Texas, Wake Forest, and Yale, collectively known as the universities, complete in most sports of the Division I level, vice level intercollegiate athletic sanction by the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Cooperating witness... Um, yeah, there's a lot going on with this indictment. I would encourage people to read this. It's kind of mind-blowing how this got around so long. It's kind of just giving general background information. So here's a, here's one of the counts. Um, I think someone just stepped forward. So this is the, how they cheated the college entrance exam. So the college entrance exam cheating scheme regionally worked as follows. Um, 
the CW1, which I think is um, a certified witness, instructed clients of the key to seek extended time for their children on college entrance exams if they did not they had not done so already, including by having the children purport to have a learning disability in order to obtain the medical documentation that ACT Inc. and the College Board typically requires before granting students extended time. Once students were granted extended time, which were generally allowed to them to take the exam over two days instead of one, and in an individualized setting, CW1 instructed his clients to chart, change the location of the exam to one of the two test centers he told them he controlled. A public high school in Houston, Texas, the Houston Test Center, or a private college preparatory school in West Hollywood, California, the West Hollywood Test Center. For example, in explaining the scheme to defendant William E. Boglasson Jr., CW1 explained that he needed to control the center for the scheme to work, and that by obtaining extended time for the test, McLaughlin's son would be able to take the test at CW1's facility rather than his own high school. At those test centers, CW1 has established relationships with test administrators who have agreed to accept bribes to facilitate the cheating scheme. Nikki Williams of the Houston Test Center and Igor Dvorsky, the West Hollywood Test Center, typically instructed his clients to fabricate a reason such as a bar mitzvah or a wedding that their children poorly needed to take the test in Houston or West Hollywood instead of at their own schools. After the location of the exam had been changed, ACT Inc. and the College Board sent the exam to those test centers to be via private interstate commercial carriers such as FedEx, in the case of ACT, and UPS in the state of the College Board. CW1 then would bribe the test administrators to allow a third party, typically a CW2, to take the exam. This is uh, certified witness 2, to take the exam in place of the actual students, to serve as a reported proctor for the exams while providing students with the correct answers, or to review and correct the students' answers after they completed the exam. In many instances, the students taking the exams were unaware their parents had arranged for this cheating. I don't know if they're giving you the answers. I don't know how they're... <laughs> you're not aware of that. The corrupt test administrator sent the doctor exams back to ACT, Inc. and the college board via UPS or FedEx. Then the certified witness clients played somewhere between 15000 and 75000 per test to participate in the cheating scheme. The payments typically structured as purported donations to the KWF charity. KWF, sorry. CW1 in turn paid uh, Dvorsky bribes of approximately 10000 per test to permit the cheating. Uh, it also likewise provided Williams, typically via payments through a mutual acquaintance. Martin Fox, who introduced CW1 to Williams, however, in July 2018, CW1 sent Williams 5000 check directly. Uh, CW1, so it's, it's getting back into the legal jargon. So it seems like, yeah, just... Oh, there's actually, there was a wiretap. Um, so, uh, so one of the defense, Gordon Kaplan, made a call June of last year. That was done through the words. It said, uh, Kaplan said, and it works. Student one said, every time laughing. Kaplan laughing. Student one says, I mean, I'm sure I did it 30 of them at different, you know, dates because there's different dates and there are families like yours and they're all kids that wouldn't have performed as well. And they did really well, and it was like the kids thought, and it was so funny, because the kids will call me and say, maybe I should do that again, I did pretty well, and if I took it again, I, I'd do even better, right? And they just had no idea they didn't even get the score they thought they got. Indeed, in many cases, even one's clients referred to other parents to him or inquired directly about other parents' involvement in the scheme, for example. Uh, let's see. Definitely pretty interesting. So there's been, so we have the test... Um, cheating. There was also the recruitment one, which involved. Sorry, my bird is tweeting at me. Um, so this is also between 2011 and 2018. 
They paid $25 million to bribe coaches and university ministries to designate their children as purported recruited athletes as a member of a favored admission categories that were facilitating the children's admission to those universities. So, this witness also told parents in some and in substance that he could facilitate their children's admission to student universities via what he termed the side door. He described the side door as a scheme as a quid pro quo pursuant of which the parents would purport to make charitable donations to KWF. The witness would in turn would funnel those payments to a particular athletic coach or to a university program designed by those coaches using KWF to disguise the nature and source of the payment. CW1 typically explained to parents that in exchange for the payments, the coach would designate their child as recruited athletes, regardless of their athletic abilities, thereby facilitating their administration to the university. So it's not the university we're not in the know either. He also explained to his clients and subjects that the scheme was a tried and true method of gaining admissions to colleges and that many other families were participating or have already participated in it, leveraging connections, had developed at multiple universities over the years with prior clients. Um, so it looks like... Um, here's another kind of uh, quote. So, okay, so this is from Kaplan again, one of the defendants. So, okay, so who... Who we are, what we do, we help with the wealthiest family in the U.S. get their kids into school. Every day there is a group of families, especially where I am right now in the Bay Area, Palo Alto. I just flew in that they went guaranteeing that they want this thing done. They don't want to be messing around with this thing. And so they went into a certain, they went in at a certain school. So I did seven, six. So and what I would... Okay, so so I did 761, what I would call side doors. There's a front door, which means you get in on your own. The back door is through institutional advancement, which is 10 times as much money. I carried the side door in because the back door, when you go through institutional advancement, as you know, everybody got a friend of a friend who knows somebody who knows somebody, but there's no guarantee that they're just going to give you a second look. My families want a guarantee, so if you said to me, here's our grades, here's our scores, here's our ability, and we want to go to X school, Give me one or two schools, and then I'll go after those schools and try to get a guarantee done. So by the time this sum, the summer of his senior, his or her senior year, before her senior year, hopefully we'll have things done so that in the fall, before December, you already know, oh, you already know he's uh, in. You make a financial commitment. It depends on what school you want. It may determine how much it actually is, but that's kind of how the side and back doors work. Hi, sorry. He's a talker at night. Um, so that was the other case. And kind of going... I just recommend reading all of this. It seems to be quite an interesting read. Uh, let's see if anything else... There's any other case involved here. Looks like there is not. So... Yeah, I'm not going to read the full indictment, but... Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of fun involving this big thing, and who knows what's actually come with it. Um, they're also going to have to go to court. Some of these people might go to prison or at least see some sort of penalty for this. And who knows if the kids that are in school or if they're already in school, if, if their status in these universities, if they're current students or their, um, their diploma are now in question due to this. So this will definitely be an evolving story. So we'll kind of see how this shakes out. Now, let's get out of entertainment into politics. Now, if anyone remembers... Um, Paul Manafort was Trump's former campaign chairman. He's been in and out of jail and had a ton of stuff going on, and he wanted a pardon, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case now. 
So now we might be in a double jeopardy case. Now, double jeopardy is an interesting thing. So Trump's former campaign chairman may be relying on the presidential issue of pardon. If he is, he should refocus his energy. So minutes after Judge Amy Berman, so this is a, uh, came out on the 16th, which I believe was Saturday. Uh, minutes after Judge Amy Berman Jackson, the U.S. District Court of the District of Columbia, imposed a 60-month sentence Wednesday on Donald Trump's one-time campaign manager, Paul Manafort. The Manhattan District Attorney Office added to Manafort's woes by indicting him in state court. The state indictment charges 16 counts, including mortgage fraud, falsifying business records, and a scheme to defraud. Manafort may be relying on the president to issue a pardon on the federal conviction. If he is, he should refocus his energies, forget about Trump, and instead rely on his lawyers to challenge the new state indictment based on double jeopardy grounds. Unlike the federal pardon, the Jeopardy challenge is one he's at least has some control over. The double Jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution states that nor shall any person be the subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. The federal protection is made applicable to the states, uh, including New York, by virtue of incorporation through the Fourteenth Amendment. The Double Jeopardy Clause contains two separate prohibitions. No second prosecution for the same offense after a defendant has been either convicted or acquitted, and no multiple punishments for the same offense. The challenge in most cases determined whether the second offense is the same as the first offense. In 1932, the case of Blockburger versus the U.S., the Supreme Court set out to test for determining whether successive prosecutions are the same. The test to be applied is whether each provision requires proof of a fact which the other does not. If no, then the two offenses are the same, and double jeopardy bars additional prosecution and punishment. So double jeopardy is one of those protections, however, where the exceptions swallow swallow the rule. For example, under the dual sovereignty doctrine, successive state and federal prosecution for the same conduct may not be barred by the Constitution's double jeopardy clause. Because the state and federal governments are treated as different kingdoms, the constitutional Blockberger same elements test does not apply. Manafort's best chance against these state charges flows not from his federal rights, but rather his state's rights. The New York State Constitution has its own double jeopardy clause, but in New York, protection against double jeopardy is statutory as well as constitutional. New York's double jeopardy statute has two parts. Part one is simple. It prohibits two prosecutions for the same offense. Part two is not simple. It prohibits a separate prosecutions for two offenses based upon the same act or criminal transaction, followed by the word unless, and a list of eight very complicated exceptions to that prohibition. One exception allows successive prosecutions where the crimes have substantially different elements. Another permits a second prosecution where a different victim is involved. Yet another incorporates its own same elements test, but additionally requires that the different crimes be designed to prevent very different kinds of harm or evil. If, for example, the new state charges against Manafort have substantially different elements or involve different victims, then Manafort might not have a double jeopardy defense under New York state law. Then again, his defense team may be able to convince a New York state judge that the state legislature intended the state double jeopardy laws to provide greater protection than the Fifth Amendment double jeopardy clause. If Manafort's defense team can show his being twice prosecuted for the same offense or based on the same act or transaction, the court could potentially toss this indictment by the Manhattan District Attorney. Based on the relatively lenient sentences achieved by his defense lawyers in federal court, they're arguably on a hot streak. So we'll kind of just see where this goes. Um, if this really is a double jeopardy case or if we can really kind of move on from there. 
So that's kind of a developing story as well. Now, and I know a lot of you are asking kind of when I was just, when this topic came up, is the big question is, can you indict a sitting president? And it's commonly, it's a big, uh, kind of a fill-in-the-blank kind of thing. If you kind of search Google, it's, can you indict a sitting president? It comes up a lot. I think a lot of people are actually looking about that. So, so let's see. Here's a Lawfare blog, um, which might actually let me in. It's kind of weird. I don't like that. Oh, here we go. So, apparently this is a Lawfare. It looks like it's a hard national security. Um, I'm not quite sure what this is. It sounds like it's kind of a, a legal source, maybe. Okay. So, there are incidental powers belonging to the executive department which are necessarily implied from the nature of the functions which are confident to it. Among these must necessarily, uh, must necessarily be included the power to perform them without any obstruction or impediment whatsoever. The president cannot therefore be liable to arrest, imprisonment, or detention while he is in the discharge of the duties of his office. Joseph Story Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States in 1833. The late Charles Black and I agreed that the sitting president may not be indicted. Uh, see page 11, 112, 136, and Black and Bobbitt impeachment of the handbook. These illusions are a matter of constitutional law, not departmental policy, though they are confirmed in an Office of Legal Counsel opinion. And they are founded on reasons of original intent, text, structure, uh, prudence, and precedent. I'm very grateful to Lawfare and to Professor Lawrence Triumph for an Exchange of views that has permitted me to consider not only his objections to my conclusion, but also how they might be reconciled with his. This exchange has sharpened some points, degrees, but all highlights points of overlap, and even suggests a new proposal in which we may both agree that it is just the way it should be. I'm not persuaded that it would be wise to modify the rule that sitting presidents cannot be prosecuted, nor am I persuaded that even in the peculiar circumstances in which the country may find itself should Special Counsel Robert Mueller disclose evidence of widespread criminality on the part of the president, an exception should be made. Hard cases made bad law, and Americans should be very wary of contorting constitutional rules to ensnare a uniquely corrupt official. Some commentators have concluded that any constitutional rule that would prevent the indictment of a sitting president would have to permit exceptions, citing the hypothetical of the president shoots and kills someone in plain view. Uh, in the reply, Professor Tribe even asserts that nobody seriously advocates applying the OLC mantra to of no indictment of a sitting president to that kind of case. So, but I do. So, if a president shot and killed someone on Fifth Avenue, I have little doubt he would be swiftly impeached by the House of Representatives and convicted by the Senate for, uh, forthwith, forthwith. Sorry. After which he would be tried for murder. The entire impeachment trial of Bill Clinton merely lasted from December 1998 to February 1999. It is Scarcely uncommon for such delay to occur between a crime and its prosecution. If Congress would become so degraded that much of an impeachment conviction did not occur, Congress would face more profound problems than that of postponing the indictment of the president. Moreover, even if, even were I to concede that there might be some extreme case, be it convincing uh, cause for creating an exception to the general rule, it is not altogether clear just how such a prosecution would come about. I doubt that any person who have reflect on the matter would choose to make a U.S. president subject to indictment by state officials. It casts no slur of the state criminal justice system to conclude that there are simply too many states' attorneys 
a great many of whom are elected to avoid the inevitable spectacle of dozens of politically motivated charges brought against the incumbent in the White House. In such a situation, it's highly impractical to grant every local district and country and county attorney the power to indict a president who is serving his term of office and thus to plunge the White House into chaos. But if a sitting president may not be indicted and prosecuted by state officials, who is supposed to prosecute him for crimes while he remains the head of the executive branch, the official to whom all federal prosecutors without exception are responsible? Or must there be an exception to that rule too, making the Department of Justice into an independent agency free from a decisive guidance by the head of the branch of government in which it is part? It is sometimes nonchalantly said that Someone other than the president, usually the attorney general, is the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. That is a position that is hard to maintain in light of the Constitutional Commandment, Article 2, Section 3, that the president shall take care of the laws, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. The Department of Justice and the attorney general are not established by the Constitution. They're created by statute, and Congress should abolish them tomorrow. Who would be the chief law enforcement officer then? Now consider, however, this very unusual hypothetical. Suppose a candidate associate sought to secure his election to the president by conspiring with hostile foreign adversaries and domestic accomplices to revert the course of the election. Assume further, which I, in fact, think would be an erroneous assumption, that these crimes are not impeachable offenses themselves, is that is there then a constitutional compulsion to wait for four or eight years during which the president is shielded from being held accountable precisely because those crimes enable him to win the office of the presidency? Even if I am correct in asserting that the, such a crime would serve as the base of an impeachment, suppose this president thwarted the exposure of his crimes throughout the control of the organs of the federal government, obstructing investigations and corrupting potential witnesses. This is a form of argument called ethical argument that denotes an appeal to character of American government as reflected in statutes, canonically statements by U.S. leaders and norms sanctified by centuries of confirmation and practice. One such argument arises from the oft-stated principle that no man is above the law, a principle enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and elsewhere. As a veteran of the Lewinsky-inspired impeachment proceeding against President Clinton, I was working at the National Security Council the entire time. I confess I am a bit jaded when I hear cries of no man is above the law. While this states an important precept, it invites rather than decides a further question. What exactly is the law with respect to the president whose constitutional role is unique? For example, I do not hold that every government official is uh, every official subject to impeachment must be first be convicted in an impeachment trial before he or she can be indicted. I did that view only with respect to the president, and I believe the precedents bear me out despite the fact that the language of Article 1 makes no distinction. To be fair, however, in the unprecedented circumstances of this unusual hypothetical, Professor Tribe's argument doesn't ignore the unique role of the president. It emphasizes it. Moreover, to the ethical principle that no man is above the law may be added the important principle enshrined also in the American constitutional ethos that no man should profit from his wrongdoing. Suppose, for example, that the constitutional role that a sitting president cannot be indicted resulted in the estopped of any criminal prosecutions of the president once he left office become the applicable statutes of limitations barred such prosecutions. Here the unique status of the president that he cannot be indicted prior to impeachment might serve to protect him precisely because his crimes have made him president in the first place. These observations suggest to me some common ground that perhaps Professor Tribe and other critics and I share. As they assert, my argument does not require the conclusion that the otherwise amply merited criminal indictment should be scrapped or suspended altogether while the president serves out his term, 
Indeed, the fact that a sitting president would otherwise be criminally indictable or the identification of a president as an un, uh, unindicted co-conspirator is highly relevant as to whether he should be impeached and even if not, as whether he should be re-elected. Both professors Akhil Amar and Walter Dellinger and Professor Tribe himself have suggested that a sitting president might be indicted but not prosecuted. This seems to go a long way to meet my prudential concerns while responding to the ethical points made by critics of my views. It also suggests that some steps must be taken to the toll the statutes of limitations that might otherwise preclude a prosecution after the president leaves office. Certainly ought to agree that the, where a presidential candidate has won office through a campaign that committed crimes in order to bring about his election, he should not be permitted to avoid exposure in the present and ultimately avoid prosecution in the future when he leaves office by taking advantage of the fact that his crimes paid off and he currently enjoys the unique prerogatives of the presidency. I believe that the Congress is just sworn in uh, I believe that the Congress just sworn in should not begin its labors by focusing on impeachment proceedings as they and that commencing such an all-consuming preoccupation should await any report produced by the special counsel. Yet it may nevertheless serve our constitutional system well to have Congress close this loophole. The respected columnist Elizabeth Drew has recently written that an impeachment process against President Trump now seems inescapable. Unless the president resigns, the pressure by the public on the Democratic leaders to begin an impeachment process next year will only increase. Perhaps action at, on the statute of limitations loophole might serve to abate some of the pressure Drew identifies until the public knows more definitely if the president was, in fact, part of a conspiracy to pervert the course of presidential election by acting in league with a hostile foreign power, or if he is guilty of making false statements to impede an investigation into this kind of conspiracy, including false statements to the public. This might give Congress some breathing room to follow the wise counsel of the new Speaker of the House. It's about the facts and the law and where it takes that takes you. Uh, that's what Nancy Pelosi said on January 3rd. We have to see what happens with the Mueller report. We shouldn't be impeaching for political reasons. We shouldn't avoid impeachment for a political reason. So, and this is from Philip Bobby. He's the Herbert Welsh Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia Law School and with Charles L. Black Jr., the author of Impeachment, a Handbook. So, it's not saying... It's just, it's just posing the question on this, just saying it needs to be done. And I think it's actually an interesting point to read. I'm glad I kind of found this uh, thing to share because it does offer the fact that there's a gray area when it comes to indicting a sitting president and certain loopholes have to be closed to make some of that even possible. And even if you can, and if you have to put it off, and it's there's definitely a lot of information that I unpack and it's definitely not one of my strongest talks about legal nature, but... That is the nature when it comes to Poor360 about what I choose to talk about when I post a poll to get the feedback. So I think that'll wrap it up for Poor360 for this week. Uh, definitely soon in next week. I think I'm going to be doing a series. I think I talked about that last week. Um, but we'll have to kind of see how that shakes out. But as always, I am Andrew Poor. You guys have a great week. And if you have any thoughts, feedback, comments, concerns, please reach me on Facebook and Twitter which you can both find in the credits that will follow the end of the show. So, that does it. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Poor360. You can find us on the socials at Poor360 on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us and all the other podcasts on our network at journeyintocomics.com or early access at patreon.com slash journeyintocomics. You can find us on all podcasting platforms like CastBox, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and many others. Hey, this is uh, an amazing explosion from... 
Now, Clarkin, uh, I just wanted to tell you guys about an event coming up in here pretty soon, Ma- March 23rd. Fun for Funs is a journey in the comics network event. Oh, yeah, and it's featuring lame pitkins from Bruce with dudes in pitkistrophy in dungeons with dudes in journey into comics. With performances by those jackasses in band number one. Also, Boner Shelby, Walk Among Us, and yesterday's Chips. I do not want to say the things about the, the comedians, the ones, the, the big Santa Claus's comedians, them's Patrick's Mercies. It's the live stand-ups guys that will be there at the north in pubs on March 23rd. Dr. Roxo, the Rock and Roll Club, baby. Here to tell you one last thing, man. You might have forgot about it, but those are open in the three. We're gonna have podcasts at four. You're gonna pay $10, baby, and it's 21 and up. That's a fact, Jack. Check it out.